This is Ibarian X, and welcome to The Candid Frame. Before we begin, I want to share something that I think you might find of interest. A little more than a year ago, photographer Trey Radcliffe and his partner Peter Giordano created something that they call the Arcanum. Its intention is to be a unique way of learning and practicing photography. Instead of just watching videos or attending large group workshops, neither of which provide any hands-on experience, the Arcanum intends to be the opposite of that. Its intention is to create a personal mentorship experience where you work directly with a photographer to develop your skills, your talents, and your voice. It's the rare kind of opportunity where you get the chance to work with a mentor who is there to specifically work with where you are and push you to go beyond your limits. I was recently approached about joining the Arcanum and after finding out more about it, I was excited to join some other great photographers including Martin Bailey, Catherine Hall, Verena Patel, and many others. They are building an amazing community that I encourage you to check out. And if you find that it appeals to you, fill out an application. And if you're interested in studying with me as a mentor, please mention me by name when you submit an application and I'll keep an eye out. Find out more by visiting thearcanum.com. Every genre of photography has its challenges. I've tried my hands at a variety of fields that have included weddings, product, food, portraiture, and more. There's always something technical, physical, or mentally challenging with each job which can make it exhilarating, frustrating, or a little bit of both. I've always thought that shooting stills for television and motion pictures to be one of the more challenging jobs to be had. You've got very little time to get the shot, and you have to do it in the whirlwind of activity that is a film set, where the people around you may or may not be sympathetic to your needs to make a photograph. Doug Hune is a set photographer who knows of such challenges. He's been doing it for decades on shows and films including Carnival, Spider-Man, Deadwood, Six Feet Under, and more. We began our conversation by asking him about a unique work experience that he had with famed film director, John Frankenheimer. Uh, I was just getting started as a unit photographer. I'd done several different uh, kinds of photography in my career up to that point. Um, and I finally interviewed with HBO and they uh, told me I was going to get to work on this movie with legendary director John Frankenheimer uh, in Mexico. And uh, I had a lot of, uh, uh, I was really excited about it. I had a lot of trepidation because people were, the uh, publicist on the show I was working on, Sequest, um, was he said well he's really fierce you know he's really tough but he's he's very uh, photographic in his uh, direction and uh, uh, you know so that's on your side but good luck so uh, we went into the uh, deep into the jungles uh, near uh, Catamaco uh, which is in the mountains above Veracruz and it was actually the same jungle they had used on a film with Sean Connery called Medicine Man. And uh, 
I had brought every kind of camera, film emulsion. I had built this gigantic box, which was impossible to carry, but I could drag it around off-road. It had uh, Hasselblad. It had Mamiya 6x6. It had uh, uh, all of my Canon 35 stuff. It had uh, just tons of gear, and uh, it was way over the top. (laughs) (laughs) And so the very first scene, uh, Raul, um, Raul Julia, oh my God. Uh, was being hung upside down um, and tortured uh, in this little dark room. So I was in there and I was doing all these great shots with the 6x6 Mamiya. And and then John Frankenheimer looked at me and goes, Ah, Doug, come over here a minute. And he whispered in my ear and he said, Your lens cap's on. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about it. I do that myself. And so that was how we met. But later on when we were uh, we were shooting, he said, Doug, come here. And he, he wags this large finger at me. He was just like a, a hulk of a man. In fact, the, uh, the Mexican uh, crews down there called him, No esta Frankenheimer, esta Frankenstein. Oh. Because <laughs> he already had a pretty big reputation with a few day, within a few days there as being tough. And uh, he said, now, Doug, I know that when you go on other sets, they don't care about your job as still photographer. But on this set, you're very important. In fact, I want you to get exactly what I shoot. What lens do you have on there? I said, uh, it's a... Uh, 24. He goes, I'm not using a 24. I'm shooting with a 35. Go get your 35. And he said, I want you to get exactly what I am getting. And if you cannot get that, I want you to tell me and I will make sure that you get that. And this is something that never happens on sets. Up to that point, my experience was that the uh, camera crew, of which I am as a still photographer, um, second to the DP, um, an operator. Um, actually, not second to the operator. The operator and I share the same pay grade, just below DP. And yet, uh, quite often I'm treated as a stepchild below the loader. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's no room on the truck for you, for your gear. Back up, we're coming through this way, just stay back, we'll let you know when you can come for, you know, just a lot of things like that when you first come in. And I immediately, like now I had reign of the set to where I could just say, John, I'm not getting this. (laughs) I started being just like him and he's like, okay, we're setting up again for Doug. And, you know, some of the, some of the films that I worked with him on, like Andersonville, uh, it could be a shot that was like, you know, it it probably cost him $10,000 to do another take and he would let me do it. And, um, I would hope that he didn't see that my, uh, my camera was out of film before the end of it, you know, (laughs) but I've never had an experience like I have had with John. And, um, I'm so honored to have, uh, gotten to work with him and, uh, I miss him all the time. He died a lot too young. Yeah. So, how are your images used? I and mean, a lot of people see your pictures and see pictures similar, you know, in magazines, online, you know, and all this 
all this press material for a movie, but why don't you explain to our listeners exactly what role your pictures play? I represent the project in two dimensions. So anything that's printed, anything that's um, seen in a still manner on the internet, newspapers all over the country have Sunday supplements, they have TV guides, and so they're used in magazines, newspapers, the internet, then they're used in marketing for, um, although now streaming is taking this away, but uh, DVD covers, posters, international syndication. So they use them quite a bit, though on the average, like I'll have people that come up to me who have been in the business for years and they'll say, oh, what do you do with all those pictures? And uh, that's the kind of thing we do. So even though your, your pictures play an important part in the promotion and the marketing of the film, uh, like you, you said, you sometimes don't get uh, the cooperation that you, you need uh, to get those images. So t tell me about what you had to learn in order to make sure that you get your job done so that, you know, after the film is finished filming, that they have the materials to be able to go out and promote it. Well, I'll tell you, when I first stepped onto the set, it just looked like a blur to me of activity. I had no clue... Nobody tells you what you're supposed to get, you know, unless they tell you, like, be sure and get uh, a two-shot of this star and that star together. They really don't tell you what to do. And so John's training for me was so um, important because I could always start with, let's get exactly what they're getting. And uh, it's really difficult to do that because nowadays you have at least two cameras going. It's rarely a single camera show anymore. So you'll have two to four to six cameras working, depending on how big the shot is. They're on dollies or steady cam and or handheld a lot. Oftentimes there's no uh, rehearsal uh, when they go handheld as to what's going to happen. And so everybody on the crew is struggling to figure out what's going to happen. And then, uh, you know, the focus puller, the uh, the gaffer, the lights, uh, the sound guy are all trying to uh, adapt. And I'm trying to poke my lens into the middle of this melee and, and uh, tell the story in a single frame what's going on. And that's probably the key element of what I do is to uh, discern what the story is of the moment um, and try to express that in a single frame. It's much easier to uh, tell a story cinematically because it's continuous but oftentimes in a film that story is not expressed in a single moment you have all of the elements that get cut together but in a single frame you don't see it so I'm trying to discern in the rehearsals like the split second when the two people I can see their face when they coincide into the motion into the same spot, or it might just be when they pick up an object or uh, hear something. And I'm trying to decide what moment that is and then try to capture that while not bumping into the camera, getting run over the, by the dolly, or getting hit in the eye by the boom man. Because the boom man is who we compete with the most for the spot, because 
they're just above me in importance, and they're treated like stepchild themselves, as if uh, hearing the words is like not that important in a film. <laughs> so, so you have to get your images while they're actually filming. You don't have the luxury of setting something up before or after they they call cut. Right. I have a I have a joke as as we're waiting for uh, minutes and and you know huge chunks of time where it, it seems as if nothing is happening on the set and the crew starts looking at each other wondering what are we doing because we know that as soon as the sun starts to go down it's going to be what we call panic vision <laughs> will, will ensue and you know then all of a sudden we need to get it done and uh, I'll joke and I'll say watch this I'm going to move the production along here and I'll walk up to the uh, to the actor and I'll say hi, could you stand over here so I can get a couple of portraits of you? And the minute that the AD sees me, he goes, all right, places everybody, let's go. Doug, get out of there. Come on, we're getting ready to go here. Lock it up. And and uh, and then I look back at my friend and we're both laughing. So uh, I, I play an important role as far as moving the production along when it bogs down. It seems like your job is as much about negotiating personalities and engaging what's happening in terms of the set as it is you making photographs. Was that something that came easy to you or was that, or no? It has been, uh, it, my job has, uh, been, um, decisive in, in pushing me to become a more spiritual person. <laughs> it has driven my spirituality. I had to learn how to become invisible on the set. So rather than uh, being humiliated by being a nobody there, I had to learn to work at being nobody on the set. And uh, that's a very humiliating thing to do, but uh, as long as your ego is in charge. It also makes it hard to get uh, service at a, uh, at a counter uh, later on because... Uh, your invisibility sometimes follows you off the set. I have to be able to uh, read the actors, most of all. Um, if they're struggling with their lines, if they're being distracted, if they're on the verge of getting upset, I have to be willing to just um, uh, put my head down and point the lens down and uh, wait it out and see, see what's going to happen. There's nothing more terrifying to a still photographer than to be shooting your actor with a, a 200 lens from, and you might be 50 feet away, but all of a sudden those eyes are staring right down the barrel of your lens into your soul, and you just, you know you're about to get the flick, which means, you know, where they take their hand and they flick you off the set. Also another humiliating experience where you have to let your ego go. Um, the other thing is, you have to merge with the crew. The crew, you know, they're like a bunch of high school kids quite often. Sometimes they're like, they're, they're super professional. They're um, driven to excellence in what they're doing, but they don't always see the necessity of creating a spot for the still photographer to look through. Quite often, the focus puller is right next to the camera and the only way that I can see the set is in between his face and the camera. 
and I have to gingerly ask him, could you possibly remove your baseball cap because the brim of your hat is right in the picture or your sonar focusing distance machine is cropping up into the top of the frame. But uh, thank God for uh, um, digital and uh, because now I, uh, I cut a hole in the back of my blimp so I can... Uh, I can see the live view, so quite often I'm I'm shooting uh, with my camera raised up over the over the lens or the operators, and um, anything that it takes to get the job done. Sometimes you have to plant a remote camera. Sometimes you have to. Uh, sometimes you do have to wait until uh, after they do the shot and then leap in and say, "Could you guys hold it for one second? Uh, but it's so intense, the motion that takes place the minute that they say, next scene, you have 50 people leaping into the scene to just tear it apart and move it to the next angle. And uh, trying to stop them is not something that makes you popular. When I came out of uh, working with John Frankenheimer, I had a, I had a lot to adapt to. In fact, I got uh, kind of blacklisted by HBO for a while because I would step into the set and say, now freeze, everybody. We're going to do a still. And everybody would look at me like, are you kidding me? What? <laughs> so I went down on the production report as as holding up production, you know, because there's always a need for a fall guy if they don't make their day. So I fell right into that mold. And um, I had to learn that, uh, you know, the still photographer doesn't really have the power to walk in and stop production by himself without talking to the AD. So can you give me an example of, of, of a time where, where you had to get the shot, where time was just limited, but you knew you had to get it, but there was so much pressure on you to yes. pull it off? Uh, I was working on a film called Norma Jean in Maryland with Mira Sorvino and Ashley Judd. And we were uh, in the scene, a biopic, we were recreating uh, the scene uh, from Seven Year Itch where she's standing over the uh, the subway grate and her dress gets blown up. So we had 150 extras. It was nighttime on the back lot at Paramount, heavy time delays. Uh, so I was gonna I was gonna light the thing with strobe and I had my assistants um, measure everything out with strings so that, uh, we could immediately go in there and we wouldn't even have to take a light meter reading or do anything. And the minute that they said cut, they flew in there with the strobes and I snapped a shot with my Hasselblad. And, you know, so it's like a gallery level photo that was done in three and a half minutes. And three and a half minutes is usually an eternity for me if I get to do a setup. Um, one of the reasons I work a lot is because if I get a setup, I can usually get it done in about 45 seconds. And uh, the downside to that is that if I get half an hour to shoot somebody, I really don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, but most is how is that? What's the balance? You know, setups as opposed to shooting while they're filming. I think it's really best if you. Uh, it it would be like 95 five not getting a setup. Uh, I think the more that you ask for setups, the more irritated the camera crew gets, the more irritated production gets, and also the more irritated the, um, the talent gets because uh, you're asking the talent to, to 
continue working when they have the moment to take a break and uh, you're asking the rest of the production team to stop what they're doing. So the reason that they fly in there to start lighting and moving the camera and doing the next setup is because they're under that pressure. So if I stop them in their tracks, even if it's only for a minute, they've lost momentum. So they get a big resentment about that sometimes. So my thing is to just, uh, a lot of the time I'll steal a setup. So if I know the actors pretty well, I'll say, look, when we when they say moving on, could you just stay there for about 10 seconds? And, you know, I want you to turn this way and I want you to look over here. And, uh, but it's a big, it's a big uh, thing to step up and, and ask them that also because they have such a hard time. Uh, they have such a huge job trying to remember their lines, trying to remember their, when they're supposed to scratch their chin or, you know, hit their mark. And they have so much stuff going on. Um, I don't really like to bother them. But uh, occasionally uh, I, can, uh, I can pull that off. You said earlier that you know, they typically hire you, but they really don't know what they want. But I'm sure that at the end, they're looking at their pictures and they go, Doug, do you have this? Do you have that? So how do you, after all your years of experience, learn to anticipate what they'll likely ask for to make sure that you get it? You want to have coverage of all the key scenes. Um, there's so many scenes which are just not important, um, where they're walking down a hall or they're driving up to a building or they're exiting. They need those for the story, but uh, a lot of the time you don't need them for a, uh, a still. But when you read the script and you see what the story is they're telling, uh, you can figure out the key moments in relationships. So if it's a story about uh, a father getting redemption with his son, um, I'll automatically be looking for uh, those moments uh, that uh, tell that story either in his eyes or physically in the juxtaposition of the characters. And I'll know that that's what I've got to get. Um, there's times when uh, something gets set up and, and I'll, I'll tell, I'll, know that it's going to be the poster or it'll it'll be a really key piece of art like um when i was doing uh i got to i got to do some reshoots on the original spider-man and actually i had help there because sam raimi came up to me and he said now when she pulls his mask down and he's hang, hanging upside down and goes she goes in to kiss him you really want that shot and so do we it's going to go around the world quite a bit so make sure you get that and sure enough that became an iconic image for the show and uh, that was an instance where <laughs> I was told what to get um, but a lot of the time uh, I get to either discover it uh, or I'm looking for it but I I always think about the minor white essay where he says go out into the world when it's foggy and gray as like an open book. I don't remember the exact words, but uh, you end up being like a a blank piece of film, just receiving things as they come. And then just your hand just becomes something that you're not in control of when you click the shutter. And that's when it's the best. 
Who, who do you do you find it's a good person to make friends with on a set? A lot of people think about the actors and the directors, but is there a particular position or, or a person that uh, making friends with helps you do your job? I would say the operator and the first AC, though honestly I find them a lot of the time unapproachable. If I make friends with them, you know, then they will allow me this, you know, they will give me the same consideration they would give anybody on the crew. But ironically, the people that actually enjoy being friends with the most are the grips. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're capable of doing almost anything. Uh, they're ingenious. Uh, they're actually very brilliant and funny and like high school kids. And I, and also they're the people that I go to if I need an apple box so I can stand up a little taller. Uh, you mentioned earlier with the setups that you brought in strobes to light, but how much of what you do involves using the lighting that's been pre-constructed for, for the scene and how much of it is you bringing in some form of illumination for your shot? Um, I never bring in uh, illumination unless it's for a setup which may or may not really stand outside of the uh, vision of the show. Um, as I said before, I'm responsible for representing that show in two dimensions. So that means not only as far as the composition, uh, the lighting, the uh, coloration, but uh, the entire vibe of the show really is going to be transmitted by through those stills. When you look at a, uh, when I look at a at a still photo from a film, or I look at a poster, I can pretty much tell if that film's going to be worth seeing or not. Because if it was a crummy production, it's hard to get a wonderful still because it's just not there. You know, you're make, trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Um, though that is my job a lot of the time. Uh, to try and make something out of nothing. In general, I am trying to pay homage to the uh, to the crafts uh, that create the scene in front of me. I mean, I've got the greatest luxury in the world, where I have eighty super talented people spending a quarter of a million dollars on a scene, so I can take a still of it. So, one thing I learned is that you don't want to get that shot and then be gloating about it to everybody and then making prints and saying, look at the picture I took, because it can really piss off a lot of people. <laughs> so how do you how did you get into this? This is not an easy gig to get. I know a lot of people aspire to. Uh, but how did you find your way into taking taking this making these kind of photographs? Well, I started off uh, as a documentary photographer in uh, in the first uh, I was in the first class at uh, CalArts, and we had a journalistic uh, teacher named Ben Lifson who had just finished an essay on gypsies in America. I had actually, in high school, just finished an essay uh, for a book called Women in Prison, and uh, my hero became W. Eugene Smith, Gary Fra uh, Robert Frank, Gary Winogrand, um, Danny Lyon, all of the great uh, black and white photojournalists. After that, I did music business. I did uh, glamour. I did advertising. But I had just gotten a family. My son, first son was born, 
and I wanted a regular check, and I wanted union benefits, and I wanted to uh, be able to have some security. So all along, I had been calling up the union, trying to find out how to become a still photographer, actually, since I first started taking pictures. And they would always say, well, was your father in the union, or your uncle, maybe, or your brother? And I would say, no. Right. Okay, well, you can't be in the union then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is ironic because today we sign at least 16 pages of disclosure saying that we have nobody that even sells a pack of chiclets to anybody from the company that we're going to work for. Um, but one day they said, yeah, um, if you want to be in the union, uh, all you have to do is have 100 days of work on a film which is real hard to get if you're not in the union. Um, And uh, at that time, it was uh, pay $5,000. But they said, hey, we'll give you easy financing. It's no interest, and you can just pay us when you can. And this was as a result of the fact that uh, in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, the non-union film crew base had grown to such a degree that the... uh, uh, the union had realized if they don't start um, getting all of those people into the union that they were going to lose their hold on the industry. And so they had opened up the uh, store, so to say, so to speak. And uh, that's when I got in. But uh, it's an interesting story. Um, You can get in the union, but they do not find uh, jobs for you, you know, which is everybody hopes that's what the case is because we all hate pounding the pavement and, and hitting our heads against the wall trying to find work. You get into the business and it gives you the right to work on a union set and that's pretty much it. An interesting story was that my wife at that time, Betty, who was not in the industry at all, was asked by a friend to work on a pilot at Warner Brothers. And I thought, okay, that's great. And I'm doing my thing. And one day the uh, the phone rings and it's a publicist from Warner Brothers, and she says, um, um, so-and-so would like you to do stills on her pilot. I said, really? She requested me? <laughs> and she says, yes, yeah, she requested you by name. And I said, okay, well, you know I get a 10-hour guarantee, don't you? <laughs> I immediately started uh, uh, negotiating for more money because uh, I'd been requested personally. And I went to go work on the show, and it turned out that it was the uh, the very same pilot that my wife was working on at the time, and she had put the request in to the publicity department to bring me on. And once you once you get a job, then uh, that's your chance, that's your shot to uh, you know to show them what you can do, and if they like what you do and they can rely on you, then. Uh, you start working more and more, and then uh, another studio hears about you. And when they call up their friend, do you know anybody that could cover this? And they say, yeah, why don't you call Doug? And then uh, that's how your uh, career takes off. Um, just don't make any mistakes. Do you find that you work a lot then with the same groups of people over and over again? Yes. When I first started off, I, I was working for uh, Fox Television and uh, I worked all the time for them. I was doing one or two, sometimes triple dipping in a day, which is, I hope the union didn't hear that. Uh, Melrose Place, 90210, X-Files, um, 
The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. It was just like show after show after show. And then, uh, you know, and then an opportunity will open up at another uh, studio and uh, you start working there and then the first people get pissed off. And uh, so now you're on to the next job, next, uh, your next bosses. You, you mentioned uh, your heroes, you know, like W. Eugene Smith, Robert Frank, Gary Winogrand. How did that sensibility that you learned from those photographers help you when it came to creating your images for these television shows and, and motion pictures? When I was a little kid, maybe around five or six years old, I picked up the book Family of Man by W. Eugene Smith, and there were images in there like uh, one of the most, one of the ones that's really ingrained in my head is the kid running down the hallway to escape, like it looks like he's running away from his uh, angry father down a darkened hall. And it, and it just, uh, these images that get emblazoned in my mind I find I go out and then I'm looking for that image. And uh, there were some other instances where, uh, like I, later on in school, I took a picture of, uh, a picture of uh, these cops playing pinball with these kids in Chinatown. And it was, it was wild. Like I had, had to work really quickly and, and step up. And then the, the cop ended up saying, if I did that again, he was going to shoot me. Um, but when I looked at that picture after printing it all night, all night, over and over again, I realized I'd had a dream of that exact scene um, the night before. So I feel like these images that uh, really make an impression on your mind, that you go out later and then you find them. So I feel like they've been pre-visualized before I take them quite often. Do you find uh, a big difference in terms of working on a television show? as opposed to working on a film, or is it very similar? It is really similar. People who work in film uh, feel that uh, what they do is way more important than television, uh, and people who work in television just work. Now that films uh, are not really being produced, they're being produced very rarely in California. Um, a lot of those film photographers... Uh, still photographers are now seeking uh, work in television, which I find uh, funny. Uh, in television, you have to work much quicker. You, you might be there for two or three days on an 11-day episode. So that 11-day episode is like a just like shooting a small, a short film, um, a one-hour film. And you have to go in and make decisions and get way more shots than the... Uh, still photographer on a film who might just be covering one or two scenes in a day, have numerous rehearsals, perfect lighting, uh, lots of rehearsals. And, you know, I mean, and you're in a beautiful uh, location with, uh, it's really hard to not get a great still. In television, you have to be much quicker and better, I think. When you started, you were shooting film, and, and now, you, of course, you're shooting, shooting digital. Um, was that advantageous to you? Did that help you, or did it create more challenges for you in terms of you being able to do your work? I welcomed digital. Uh, I, I was heralding digital. I was, uh, 
I shot the first HBO movie on a uh, D30 or a 30D. It was the 3.2 megapixel okay. first DSLR that was affordable. And I was in heaven because shooting and feeling that you got something and then dropping it off at the lab on your own time, going back to the lab on your own time and looking at the snips, and then uh, making the judgment, then going back on your own time so you could edit the pictures and make a couple of copies of the images for yourself for your portfolio. I mean, that was just some of the disadvantages. On top of that, you had to have uh, Tri-X, you had to have Plus-X, you had to have uh, E6 in uh, tungsten, high-speed uh, 320, uh, that you'd push three and a half stops to try and get an image. Then you had to have Kodachrome on top of that. And so all of these emulsions, you're testing and then storing in your refrigerator, um, and then you're having to drag it all around. So if you're working in the desert, you have your ice chest that you're trying to keep your emulsions cool in, and then you open it up and the ice is melted and everything's soggy. You know, it's um, it was very challenging. Like I mentioned, when I went to Mexico, I had cases of film that I took down there for the 30-day shoot. By the time I was done, the skin tones, let's just say, were... Uh, Redder than the back of John oh. Frankenheimer's neck. <laughs> it's it's a lot of work. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed in terms of all the things that you have to do, not just technically, but you know, in terms of you know dealing with time constraints and and, and people and everyone else. After all the many years that you've been doing this, what keeps it fun for you? What keeps it fun is um, when you go on a production and it's truly original. Uh, and you get to play a part in telling the story of it. It's it's really exciting. Uh, the production designers when uh, when they have the uh, the chance and they and they go all out. It's just uh, amazing to go on a set that takes you back a century in time, and you get to hang out in that century. I love working on westerns. When I work on a western, I'm I'm the Korean cowboy. You know, I mean, it's like. <laughs> Everything transcends when you're on a Western and nobody really sees color. You, you know, it's just really about your hat <laughs> and your boots. And it's real. You know, you're really there. The people that work on Westerns work on Westerns all the time. So they actually are cowboys. And uh, they actually have all of the correct gear to be back in that century. Um, the other thing is gr that's great is locations. In Los Angeles, I've lived here all of my life. And I find a new, amazing part of Los Angeles every time I go on location. Um, I've discovered neighborhoods that I never would have set foot in, and they're wonderful. And, and the people there uh, have, have great lives going on. And, you know, they can't even imagine my neighborhood or how I live. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, I really get to find out... Uh, what Los Angeles is all about, and I get to experience more and more of it. I mean, it's impossible in a lifetime to actually experience all of Los Angeles. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I would, I would say it would be uh, W. Eugene Smith because... 
I think that uh, a lot of people have never heard of him, um, but I think that his essays are so deep and so iconic and and uh, reach right down into your soul at such an intense level that um, uh, you owe it to yourself to to look at his book. Um, Robert Kappa, uh, of course, and uh, Diane Arbus. Diane Arbus actually really influenced me the most in my, uh, uh, I haven't talked about it, but uh, uh, the work that I did while I was at CalArts was predominantly street photography, and my turf was uh, Hollywood at night. And uh, uh, Diane Arbus influenced that work the most. Uh, so it's a combination of W. Eugene Smith meets Diane Arbus. That's cool. Well, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Uh, the f- best place to go would be to www.motionpicturestills.com. That's where they can find out about me. Great. Well, Doug, thank you for making time for me. I really appreciate it. It was really a, a neat opportunity to find out more about you and your work. Well, thank you so much, Abadi and X, for asking me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners like you. To help support the work we do at TCF, please take the time to make a donation via PayPal for $10, $20, $50, or more. Your contributions have helped to make the show what it is. I'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com, and our music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.